0: So the perturbation in uh, the magnetosphere actually creates electricity, which then propagates down all the way onto the surface of Earth, which is where it can actually affect power grids, for example. I I mean, you know, if if you just think of physics, what are the physics processes, right? It's really um, conductivity, electric current that causes voltage fluctuation. Electric current can... Cause, you know, based on region. I I don't know whether they have enough energy to change plate tectonics to create or die. I don't know. I did
1: not expect that to end on aliens.
2: I did not expect her to talk about the interaction between earthquakes and solar weather.
1: Yeah, so it turns out that Dr. Madhulika Guhatakurta is directing an initiative that looks at NASA data archives using machine learning and artificial intelligence. And one of the things that they're going to be looking at
2: is seismicity on Earth.
1: Does the sun cause earthquakes?
2: And in general, she seemed to indicate that NASA was starting to tease apart all of our favorite fringe topics including the electrical interactions uh, that cause different weather systems on Earth. And I don't think you're going to find all of the answers necessarily in this podcast for how those things work, but it's rather reassuring to hear that there are various teams starting to work on these. And it seems like we're going to be put in touch with some of those folks too. So look forward to interviews with those particular scientists in the future. I'm pretty stoked to find out how it's working on the ground floor.
1: Yeah, it was a fantastic conversation. Uh, Dr. Gukatha Kurta is a she's a connection point between a lot of different NASA departments. She's been with the organization for a really long time and so has this very high-level view of how all the pieces fit together and the direction that the organization wants to go in, right? She has a vision in her mind of the ideal institution and what it's doing to achieve that and I think that that's, it's just optimistic and really, really, really exciting.
2: Yeah. So enjoy the conversation. I think it's an optimistic one and one where it seems like NASA has a good shot of becoming a very open, public place of science that we can all participate in.
1: And so support us on Patreon so we can continue to bring you fantastic conversations like this. We're at patreon.com slash and enjoy the conversation. The scientific revolution starts now. The Let's see the We've been talking to a lot of people about stars and solar system things. And I think we kind of, when we spoke on the phone earlier, we gave you a view of what the project is about which is that it's a place where people who have theories of of their field to come and discuss things that can't necessarily be published by peer review yet and they 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 have a wealth of experience and they also want to look forward into the future to see sort of to to look into the crystal ball to see what to see what might be
0: and i feel like Astrophysics. <laughs> my, my hair kind of gives away the crystal ball symbol, right? <laughs> I'm joking. It, 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 I, I look at myself. Normally I don't look at myself and it just seems like different from what I used to look like.
1: Do you think that with that difference in appearance has come a difference in your perspective on science?
0: Not at all. I am a core believer in sort of the connectedness of our universe. It's too big a word to bite, and our knowledge is very limited, especially mine. There are more out there, more knowledgeable, but, um, you know, I try to understand, comprehend as much as I can and in that sense i think my hair suits me these days
2: the sense of how much change has occurred within astrophysics in your own career like what are some of the biggest shifts that you've seen like you know gaps in knowledge that have closed in your lifetime
0: oh that that's what a fascinating question um I came to US in 1980 after finishing my master's in cosmology and astrophysics. So that was my direction at the time, you know, and cosmology was a lot of particle physics. I kind of looked at the problem of solar neutrino in those years. So go back to 1980. What we knew about uh, quantum mechanics, about Cosmology, astrophysics is a very hard science, you know, stellar structure and all we knew pretty well. Cosmology, quantum mechanics. Um,
2: the neutrino hadn't even been discovered back then, from what I understand, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yes, or detected, we neutrinos, but there were solar neutrinos, right? And they were changing shape and form and color, whatever names we have given them. Don't ask me to remember all of it, but I'm kind of going through that um, journey. Uh, and uh, it is an entirely different world. It's fascinating. And, and I have to say, the change is staggering
2: what are you working on right this moment? Or what are you supporting? What projects are you supporting?
0: So heliophysics just um, seems to be growing and growing. You know, it, it's, of course, we kind of tentatively know like there is a boundary. There is heliopause. Beyond that, we are in the interstellar uh, medium. But what is heliophysics? It's Heliophysics is a name we have made up It is studying the interaction between a star and a planet or many planets in our solar system. Mm. It in a way forms the fundamental basis for our knowledge of whether we are looking at an exoplanet system where we have to really kind of figure out the connection between that stellar object and its exoplanetary environment or whether we are looking at our own planet or whether we are trying to understand uh, the very concept of magnetic field. So heliophysics actually does fundamental physics, I think. And that's why it's kind of hard sometimes to kind of get it into sound bites and pass it on to people. But except for cosmology, almost, I think, Heliophysics and comparative heliophysics encompasses a lot because yeah. physics...
2: It's like that's, that's part of why we want to do this long form podcast business is we can get beyond sound bites and like really try to understand what's happening at the edge of what's, what's known by these scientists. It seems like the heliophysics is increasingly relevant, especially as we grow our technological society, where we have all of these electronic devices... And they're affected by electromagnetic radiation and uh, magnetic field interference and all of this stuff. What are you learning about how the sun affects the Earth in terms of our civilization and our society? Is this a, a real concern? Are there projects aimed at uh, understanding and mitigating the, the space weather aspects? Or what's going on in that dimension?
0: So, first of all, I would answer with yes, everything that you have asked. And let's see. And it stopped me at any time to kind of probe deeper. And if I can provide insight, you know, 100 years ago, um, human civilization really didn't care about what the sun was doing. Sun kind of appeared constant in visible light. And therefore, that's what we thought it to be doing. And that obviously started changing and now in the past uh, 40 50 years in the space age again our knowledge about the Sun Earth connection has exploded so Sun is an ordinary you know I guess dwarf G2 kind of star and um, it, it varies every 11 years or so. And the variability is in terms of radiation, charged particles in magnetic fields, three components, okay. These three areas kind of show the solar cycle variation going from maximum to minimum. Of course, in between the sun throws punches with solar storms and transients, and that can alter stuff especially in certain wavelength, not in the visible, which is, which is something that remains pretty constant to a level of 1 one tenth of a person, which is where the word solar constant came from. So now if you start kind of taking each one of these variability, let's say, let's start with radiation, you know, radiation, it, it's the entire elect- electromagnetic spectrum, right? If you look at the sun in um, ultraviolet or uh, extreme ultraviolet, soft x-rays, that actually varies uh, more uh, differently than just a solar cycle type variation every 11 years. So if there's like a solar flare or kind of a really a strong uh, solar transient event, it can produce a huge amount of energy in that wavelength. And the reason I bring this up is that is the energy that gets deposited in one of the layers of uh, our outer atmosphere, you know, the ionosphere. Ionosphere gets ionized by not total solar radiation, but, the soft X-ray, ultraviolet rays, it energizes it. No matter what time of the year or day, if something is happening on the sun, it's going to respond by creating from neutral atoms to more, uh, you know, plasma, right? It, it's breaking up the atoms into its constituencies like electrons, protons, ions, etc. So that's, let's say that's on the... Uh, radiation side, I've just given you one example. I'm not going to. And this perturbs. If the ionosphere is perturbed, then the way we do our communication, which is bouncing radio signals across the ionosphere, they get perturbed. And that's kind of where you begin to see uh, sort of um, impact on communication navigation more. Okay. Let's pick up another one like um, energetic particles. Uh, energetic particles again. A solar flare will produce energetic particles, which will create shock fronts, etc. As they arrive, you know it it again ionizes not only ionosphere and higher layers, but it can actually affect because these are particles. Now we are talking of they can affect our satellites, electronic sensors on satellites. These are called single event upsets. And from time to time, of course, they will impact a satellite. Solar arrays will degrade. And if we have- um,
2: by, by the way, how are, you measure, how are you measuring those things? I'm really curious, like what sort of, how do you know about these, uh, the density of these particles? Or, or, yeah, how do you know what a you very, know?
0: Very good question. Yeah. Yes, so, you know, when we look at the sun, we, are, we can only do remote sensing up until very recently where we have sent Parker Solar Probe, right? Where it's locally measuring all of this. But generally speaking, we are looking at our remote sensing observations and creating models.
2: Are, the, are those so remote sensing the instruments essentially photovoltaic cells? Like, are they making an electrical output from some collision that's happening? Like, how, how, what, how are the well, sensors I, actually working?
0: Ultimately, you're going to the heart of it, right? And I, I wouldn't probably be able to give you exactly, you know, how the filters are working. But think of a telescope, okay? It's a telescope with lens and with filters that is really taking the intensity could be of the total sun, or could be of a spectral region, or it could be, it is orchestrated in such a way that we get polarization measurement. Mm. And we can deconvolve all this to get everything that we want. So you
2: get the particle inference from some sort of radiation-based spectral uh, instruments? Is that it? It's like a secondary readout of the, the light interactions?
0: Uh, absol- absolutely. So I've, there's, there's a little bit more to it. So these energetic particles is something we measure also at Lagrange Point One. We have lots of satellites there. So Lagrange Point One is about a million miles from Earth, mm-hmm. and the sun or distance is 93 million miles. So if you have good models, you can kind of figure out how, how it is varying as a function of distance and create a flux and mm-hmm. fluence and all that.
2: And these are like protons and heliums. And what, what are those particles?
0: So th- these are these are energetic uh, particles, so not molecules, mm-hmm. not atoms. These are plasma constituencies. So you may electrons and protons being the two most important ones, right? Uh, and then we have, of course, ions left over, right? So hydrogen breaks up into clean electrons and protons. Uh, helium will have helium ion and then, you know, it cascades up. So we have a decent understanding of composition at uh, Lagrange point one but by looking at the sun with uh, spectroscopic observations we are also able to establish the fingerprints of composition and we are forever trying to match right the sources of where some of these um ionized atoms are coming from mm. because it, it's, it's not uniform
2: interesting so you're, co- you're correlating what you learned from watching the sun to what you detect with these sensors at various distances from the Earth, and essentially coming up with theories of how those sensors are able to react that way based on the ionization of these different elements at the Sun.
0: Absolutely. And you know, you, you asked me the question very early on like, how much have things changed? Uh, as I said, heliophysics is, is still understanding of this whole environment. So think of from the days of modeling to ground truth verification, that that's where we are in the last 40 years.
1: And in terms of understanding the effects of these changes on what's happening on the planet, you know, we talk about space weather we talk about climate we talk about these solar minimums versus these solar maximums how is our how is our perspective on the the earth sun system and the effect that it has on our lived experience changing
0: and then so this is a brand new topic you know this about came into age at nasa Um, about uh, one magnetic solar cycle ago. (laughs) So almost like 22 uh, years through the Living with the Star program. NSF kind of started looking at space weather as a component of our resort in 1995. So Living with the Star program kind of started concentrating on, um, you know, what are those fundamental science, amongst all the curiosity-driven science that affect life and society. And that's kind of the birth of space weather uh, within NASA. And I actually led that program from 2001 to 2016. So it, it's very close to my heart, because NASA, outside of Earth science in space science, didn't mix up applied science in a way With fundamentally driven, fundamental science question driven, curiosity driven science. And and so, what we begin to kind of take note of is that we have to actually look at the sun uh, continuously, you know, can't take our eyes off. So, we have Solar Dynamics Observatory, that's actually, which launched in 2010, continuously monitoring and observing the sun so we know. Where storms are happening, where active regions are, and of course, you know, it's just any sort of spacecraft, right? We can't put everything in it. So there are about uh, ten filters observing the sun, from visible to extreme ultraviolet. Now,
2: it's not—it's not just. Or, the, I just want to pause you for one second. I'm sorry. The—it's not just the sun, though, right? There's there's this interaction between the Earth's magnetic system and the sun.
0: Absolutely.
2: Are, you, are absolutely. you monitoring that system as well and trying to understand, because for me it seems like the real danger is that there would be uh, some congru- uh like some incongruence between the protection afforded by the magnetosphere and some sort of solar outburst. And uh, yeah, what are you, what- yeah,
0: but you- You are absolutely right. So it's a chain, right? Causes and consequences and and so you so the goal is to observe the sun, uh, sun understand and predict to the extent we can predict then we have the lagrange point 1 where we are measuring this actually locally so we know what we have measured once we have measured the magnetic density uh, velocity at lagrange point 1 we know what is going to get really uh, propagated into Earth's environment. And it starts with the magnetosphere, right? The Van Allen belts, which used to be called, called radiation belts, but named after Van Allen, right? Which is Earth's own magnetosphere. Sun has its magnetosphere, Earth has its magnetosphere. And these energetic particles essentially depending on the orientation of the magnetic field, they will either get expelled by the magnetosphere, you know, opposite magnetic fields uh, repel, or they will get propagated through the open field lines into Earth's atmosphere. So when you see aurora, northern or southern, that's kind of an indication that a solar storm on sun has made contact with our own environment. So that's the magnetosphere. And you can stop me ask, again, any question you want, but then this gets kind of pushed into ionosphere, right? So the perturbation in uh, the magnetosphere actually creates um, um, electricity, which then propagates down all the way into onto the surface of earth, which is where it can actually affect power grids, for example.
1: Yeah so but beyond just power grids I'm I'm thinking about the way that all of this solar material that comes into the earth's atmosphere is forcing a change in how gases are mixing or how winds move or it's providing motive force for the jet stream or it's disturbing the jet stream like do we have a sense of how this this influx of solar material is affecting atmospheric conditions and it a seems
2: like it really is is contributing to the atmosphere too right if we're saying that this ionosphere is atmosphere it's yeah. almost like this is the outmost layer of the atmosphere,
1: and it seems like it's a huge stream of material that's coming in, right? I was, I mean, uh, in terms of relative size of the Earth, like I, I, I googled this roughly before we started, and it was like it takes 150 million years for the solar wind to lose an earth's amount of material. So it's a pretty from the sun, sun. but that seems to me like an average reading of just average of, 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 you know, if you integrate over time, but we know that there's these massive solar events that are unusual. And when they happen, they release a, a tremendous amount of material. And even though the visible light isn't affected, we're getting bombarded by very high energy radiation that, that, must be changing
0: things atmospherically. Uh, Glad you asked that question. We normally kind of do not talk enough about the imprint of the sun on climate. I mean, we know that sun, of course, controls climate, but because we take the climate conversation to our very uh, uh, immediate recent past, where of course you know uh, we have other elements that are contributing to the global temperature rise, right? but what the sun does is beyond its total energy input in the form of total solar irradiance. Exactly what you talked about: spectral solar irradiance, which is ultraviolet, X-rays. That's radiation, tremendous impact um, because it ionizes everything. We have energetic particles that you just talked about, right? It's Especially like uh, uh, it's called NOxes, you know, nitrate oxides and kind of other um, uh, uh, molecules of that nature, which again will enter, you know, the energetic particles enter through the open magnetic field line, creates these uh, complex um, molecules. They interact with the ozone layer. The ozone layer actually you know at the poles can have different kind of dynamics which can create you know different kinds of surface wind pattern so this is all this is a very complex dynamic photochemical interaction going on and we are just beginning to put pieces together
2: Is this ion belt the same thing that was called the Van Allen radiation belt?
0: So, no, that's uh, so that's further out above the ionosphere. That's the Van Allen radiation belt, which is really um, two kind of donut shaped uh, belts, which is a consequence of. Earth's magnetic field. So when you see a picture of the and this nanom-
2: is also trapping different particles and so forth, right? This is
0: exactly very high energy particles. Actually, especially the inner belt, you know, is trapping protons, electrons, and if there are intense activity going on in the sun, it can really energize the uh, energetic particles in the in our radiation belt. And then if you have satellites crisscrossing, or if you have astronauts going through that to get elsewhere, then they can be impacted.
2: Yeah, I, I read something kind of scary that the the Russians were trying to develop a program to drain the Van Allen belt so that it would be easier to travel through. <laughs> and uh, I, don't, I don't know how easy that would be to pull off. But it seems like it might be a bad idea if, uh, if this is all contributing to our atmospheric conditions at the end of the day. And it's just like, I can't even imagine all of the downstream consequences. What, what do you think would happen if we turn the Van Allen belt?
0: So, and, you know, these are really good questions and this is not just with Van Allen probes. Whenever we do geoengineering, right, mm. That that's the way to look at it. We are thinking of geoengineering uh, to mitigate around our climate situation. Uh, Some of the ideas behind it can be really good, but it requires a lot of research and thinking to figure out what are the consequences. Because we we always don't put the same amount of thinking into looking at the corollary, good or bad. You know, I haven't even thought about it but I'm aware people are uh, thinking about it and there'll be consequences. And this is, this is pretty extreme measure.
2: Yeah. It seems like a lot of earth systems are naturally buffered in that they're bistable. Like if you think about the ice ages or something like that, the glaciations, it's like it happens rather quickly and stays stable for a while. And then, excuse me, and then bounces back out of that. And, uh, I wonder. It worries me that if we alter the atmosphere, uh, you know, we had uh, David Keith, was it from uh, Harvard, from Harvard, who was doing some preliminary studies about uh, blocking out solar irradiance in order to uh, what was it? Was this just to treat the climate? It was just climate, to, I yeah believe. to, to yeah. Slow, just to slow stabilize increase. the climate, and and it strikes me that any real changes. That were gonna happen might happen rather suddenly as opposed to gradually. You know, you might be able to measure, oh well, the earth's taking it fine, no problem. And then one day it just flips on its heels, you know, because it just seems like something about nature is really really stable and makes these jumps very quickly.
1: It's like punctuated equilibrium, right? You see this, you see this in evolutionary systems as well, where I think that if you look at the the radiation of species, you have these moments where there's big extinctions. And then after that, there's basically this repopulation and, and expansion of types. And then those are maintained for some period of time. And then you have another extinction, and all of a sudden things can radiate outwards again. Like, we, we see this all the time here in the West where, you know, forest fires are a continuous thing that's in the back of your mind. You know, you go to the woods and you look around and you see the... We went somewhere the other day and I was looking at the landscape and, you know, I think almost 50% of the trees were just dead. And it's, it's out in a wilderness area. It hasn't burned for a long time. And so you look at it and you're like, this is a place that is going to become significantly impacted by a single event that is going to transform the entire course of what happens next. And that seems like that's a common theme in systems. And so is the Earth-Sun system also like that, is that kind of what you were trying to ask?
2: Yeah, I guess so. I just think it's really fa- it's really fascinating how things happen in steps like that. Um, I know the Van Allen belt has these discrete uh, energy states as well, and it just seems like—is there any progress towards understanding the stability of, of those systems, or you know, how these tipping points occur? Like, what what are you learning?
0: I I I think. Um... You know, with the launch of Van Allen probes, um, what I think 2012, we, we learned a great deal of science, but that knowledge is still incomplete. For example, we found for the first time, you know, we we thought there were only two Van Allen belts. We found a third one. And in, in, the, in, in understanding the formation of the third belt, we kind of understood the energization process of that so there is a plenty we understand and plenty we don't because that that that's you know what you're looking at in the van allen probes at the end of the day particles and uh, waves interacting with each other and to that you are adding magnetic field and uh, you know, burst of solar energetic particles. It becomes really very complex, and unless you are looking at it both in spatial and temporal distribution function from region to region, you know, we we essentially understand uh, our our understanding is sort of in the pockets where we are really looking at it. So,
2: are each one of those layers to... at different energies? By the way.
0: But they are, they are, they are. And there are, yes, there are very many discrete sort of energy states, you know, which will happen if you have a magnetic field environment, you know, Mm -hmm. that is dynamic to go with. So um, uh, we have a, a good global understanding, better global understanding after um, you know seven years of looking at the Van Allen probe uh, data, but when it comes to sort of the microstate, I, I think we really need uh, sort of um, uh, deeper uh, spatiotemporal uh, distribution. So with, for example, cube you know now those things might be possible. Oh, I'm not sure what those we are. Apply a small constellation to probe mm. like so basically
1: like uh it, these are these are hobbyist satellites that people would be flying or or these are these are NASA projects that they would that they would be
0: uh, uh, I would say it could be both. I mean, uh, I would not I, I would like to give it a different name, like maybe Citizen Science Project mm. all over the world, I love that. right? Mm. And, and then you can, I mean, that's what's happening. You can just see, you know, the entire world and uh, kids, young people, they are energized by what's available on the internet and what they can do, what's within their power to do. Um, they, they, again, there are good sides and bad sides, right? Whenever we put something in space, we have to be very mindful of bringing them down and all that uh, to keep the space junk level low. But but I think the progress of science, both from uh, small satellites like cubesats, micro cubesats, to large, large spacecraft, m- much beyond what we have done so far, because of what the you know what's going on actually in the launch vehicle industry, I think science uh, can gain tremendously and kind of new way of doing science.
1: Yeah, of course. And so you you said that you worked on the Living with a Star project from you said it was 2001 to 2016 and that encompasses within it this Van Allent project it's the Solar Dynamic Observatory i think there was there's a couple other things that are under the umbrella of that but yes what is it what is it that you have shifted your focus to now like what is what is your day to day like
0: ah Okay, so, yes, I'll just briefly mention the two other kind of uh, projects that I played a very big role. One is, of course, Parker Solar Probe. I think I stayed on at NASA headquarters to see that mission through, you know, give up my bureaucratic job. The other is Solar Orbiter collaboration with European Space Agency. But where I am today, so... um, After 2016, I took a short um, sabbatical and went to NASA Ames Research Center. And what I started doing there is kind of looking at all the data we have collected over decades, and not just NASA, other space agencies, ground-based agencies, and start applying artificial intelligence machine learning to that data. Because one thing we don't talk about is that it's only a very small fraction of our data actually gets utilized um, by scientists, uh, by by the very nature of the way we've been doing science. But if you bring AI ML into the picture, not all questions need to be answered by that. But there are some questions that lend itself really well where scientists are struggling by applying AIML. So I really have kind of focused my attention not to new missions as much, but really trying to figure out what are some of the important questions we want answers to. Maybe we don't understand the physics, but maybe we can take the route of AIML and see if there's a there there.
2: Yeah, what are some of those questions that mm-hmm. are showing up?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they've been, uh, actually, the last four years have been uh, fascinating. I'll, I'll start, I'll give you one example, which to me was mind-boggling. Solar Dynamics Observatory um, spacecraft has three instruments, you know, two telescopes and um, a spectral sensor called Extreme uh, Variability Experiment, which was measuring the extreme ultraviolet, as I was mentioning, which is the real energy source for the ionosphere. One of those sensors kind of had an electrical malfunction in 2014 and it stopped functioning. And that was a very important wavelength range. So we were using that, right? And so we asked the question, okay, solar dynamics observatory has atmospheric imaging assembly telescope with 10 filters it is taking uh, you know 4k by 4k resolution every other second or so data huge amount of data so can we use that data in conjunction with what the eve experiment was doing when it was still working so that's the training data set right and then can we then continue to create that algorithm and utilize that to predict what that sensor would have measured say right now when we don't have that uh, sensor but we need the AIA data and it's just mind-blowing. The results were better than um, physics-based models we have used. And we are in the process of trying to validate this, right? You have to go through process of verification, validation. But isn't that just amazing?
2: We mm, didn't have it's to cool. do that. So you're like basically filling in the, the...
0: sensor.
1: <laughs> I love the idea of there just being like a NASA astronaut hanging onto the satellite, like trying to change the sensor. <laughs> we,
0: we didn't have to do... I mean, we have done that, right? With Hubble. Well, I mean, you know, SDO is at a place where nobody's going and I, I yeah so th- this is yes so
1: this is just one example. And so how do you verify so because I mean as far as I can tell what you're saying is that you had this you had a record of uh, I, I think it's four years of concurrent data and you were able to take the the data from two different detectors and look to see the relationship between them and using uh, machine learning Basically, now that the other detector is offline, you can, you can extrapolate to what it should be saying. But if the detector is offline, then what are you using to verify that the results that you're getting are actually accurate?
0: So that was the training, right? So if you have AIA data, which is one of the uh, big telescopes on solar dynamics observatory. So so you've created basically an algorithm, an inference model, utilizing the old um, EVE data and AIA data. And then you use that inference model with AIA as input to get the output, which is EVE. And, and And verification. So there is no other ground truth, you know, other than that we have tested it with the data. Before it works, and we are applying that. But we are so the process of you know if if I want to operationalize this right, we have to go through a lot more rigorous process because we have uh, bits and pieces of data being taken by different kind of instruments. So we have to collate those and make sure that what we are getting is solid.
1: Mm-hmm. You know. Um... So we we spoke to uh, Ted Pavlik from Arizona State University a few months ago. And he was working on something that's very unrelated to stars. He was working on the complex social dynamics inside of ant colonies. And what they were doing is they were taking a huge training data set from videos that they did of these ants... And they were basically just monitoring the ways that the ants were interacting with each other in order to tease out new behaviors using this machine learning that was enabling them to update their models of how the social interactions within the ant colony allowed it to go through this social and biological transition. And what was happening is that they were kind of encountering such strange behaviors that they were having to retool their model of what they thought was happening inside of the colony. And so as you're going through and you're looking at this data and you're starting to give machine learning, or you're starting to put this machine learning shell on top of it, are you finding things that contradict old theories? Are you finding things that are kind of moving solar science in a direction that... Are
2: there new discoveries altogether?
1: Yeah. What's, what is... What is? Yes.
0: Uh, I haven't found anything that has been so much contradictory, but I will tell you that we have found things we didn't know. And my first sort of interaction or exposition to AI ML was through these steps because you know I was agnostic about it. You have to make me believe. And what we found is by doing this data input output, we were able to actually reproduce um, um, conditions, models, uh, environment that scientists know exists, but there is just no way for data to pull that out. And like what, what are some so, examples? So you're, you're kind of, you have to test, you know, it, it's not like you put data in and you get data out. It, it requires a lot of interrogation and it requires that you bring computer scientists and domain experts to work together.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Neither one group can do it alone because these, these, these fields have evolved, you know, in their own right and they are very complex. So kind of trying, expecting that a domain scientist will have all the knowledge and tools to kind of apply it, the computer science, And similarly, for computer science to take some data and say, oh, look here, this is what I have found doesn't work. So we've actually created um, an environment where we bring domain experts, computer experts, industry experts who have developed these inference models. And of course, they have the compute capability. And we really bring them for a period of eight weeks during summer. In fact, I'm going to AIMS. next week when we are starting this and we, we post these questions. And, um, so in eight weeks, the turnaround, we are able to see it, it's, it's really pretty amazing. And so what's on the agenda for this? So I, I assume
1: that there's kind of an arc to this, to this collection. So in a couple of weeks, you're getting, going to Ames and what's the, what's on the agenda for this year's meeting?
0: So, um, uh, You know, we just don't do heliophysics. This is the the name of uh, this um, environment, is Frontier Development Lab. So you can do frontierdevelopmentlab.org to see all the different topics we are tackling from biology to astrophysics to earth science to heliophysics. In heliophysics, what we are trying to do is This this would be very fascinating. These are questions to which we don't have answers yet in terms of even physics, right? Just general ideas. So we are going to take all our data, solar data, all the data we have at L1, ionospheric data, and earthquake data. Mm. And we are trying to figure out condition right uh, oh well, you are in California of course it loves this right uh, because scientists have delved into it but those are one of two of and you don't know it's just a correlation study of uh, whatever period and the question was why don't we put everything together see what comes out it don't sensationalize it but look at it that's that's
1: incredible because i have over the course of the last few years i periodically come across people who are suggesting that there's a parallel here and the the most substantive demonstrations that i've been able to find is you know there's an a conference abstract here, a little whisper there, and people are kind of like, Yeah, this does seem like it's happening, but they don't have the There's been
2: a couple of big papers over the last decade or so.
1: Yeah, but it's just like they they're like little blips and then but it's not something that has been kind of taken by the entire community to be the case and so it's very very and there's cool. nobody
2: that i'm aware of that has a really solid predictive model for the seismology interactions with the s- solar weather is that is that true or are there that, uh, that, are there that, models that being built true. is we anybody having success have... with models or what's no the...
0: no, no no but <laughs> the question we have posed Let's bring all the data together and see if there is an inference model. Just because we are bringing things together doesn't mean there's going to be an output. Of course. If there is such a pattern that comes out, then we can put directed resources to go after it.
2: I love that. Yeah, I've long thought since I first got into science that it would be really wonderful. This was before the whole data uh, science craze and everything. I always thought it would be wonderful if there was one group of people that did the experiments and tests and built the instruments and a totally separate group of people that analyzed the data and maybe even a third set of people that tried to make sense of what the analysts came, the patterns that they were seeing. Um, because, you know, maybe not so much in star science, but in laboratory science, one person's trying to do all of those and there's all these biases that crop up, right? The, the way that you yeah, look at a absolutely.
0: data... absolutely.
2: So that's pretty exciting to to hear that th- this sort of division of labor is at least you know making some gains.
1: And I mean also the because i've I've seen this so we, we okay, we spend a lot of time on the fringes of science. Right so as people who love science you know I'll I'll read all of the pop science I'll read the mainstream stuff and then I'll also go and I'll read the people who are working outside of the academy and this thing of the relationship of the sun to earth is something that fascinates extra academic researchers tremendously but the oftentimes they don't I mean who possibly has the kind of infrastructure and computing power that is necessary to look through, I think that I saw today that the SDO sends more than a terabyte of data per day. And so who has the power except for a world superpower to be able to process that? Like there's just, there's no capacity anywhere else. And so there's this knowledge that's hidden in the, in the, in the things that are being pulled down from these observatories.
2: It seems like it's a great opportunity for citizen science too. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of folks who would love to get their hands on that raw data. Maybe they already can
1: yeah is there any is there any initiatives to pull people in from from outside the academy to be able to work with this data or to be able to contribute or to to get involved
0: somehow? So uh, another wonderful question. Uh, we haven't done it in heliophysics, but we will be. trust me Excellent. but in earth science we have already kind of demonstrated that where we created a topic and bringing completely you know from high school teachers english majors to kind of really give them um rudimentary skill of python and looking for images and categorizing them Mm -hmm. this this has already produced amazing wealth of information and is this publicly available like if you're it's a lot possible say that again I said, is this public? So like if you
1: are uh, somebody that wants to learn how to do Python analysis of Earth science data, is there some kind of public portal where you can go and all of this is
0: available? Is
2: the data public? Uh,
0: uh, The Earth science data is public, but you still need someone to train and corral you to kind of look at it in the beginning. Once you're trained, you know, you can do your own thing, basically. So, yes, uh, pretty much all of NASA science data is uh, publicly available. But what about Uh, these training
1: programs? What about these training programs for helping people figure it out?
0: So training data, because this is Earth science, I cannot tell you whether it is uh, they have put it on a portal available. Likely, it is for heliophysics. Everything we are doing, I know that it is available on um, you know uh, SDO ML uh, Hub. Anyone can go and hmm. pull this data. And but that, you, that's the goal. Of, do you also you know, I mean, NASA is also initiating open science. Yeah, so are you also sort
1: of training... So let's say somebody is interested, but they have no programming experience. They don't know Python. They don't know ML. Is there a module that is at the, uh, that is at the Solar Dynamic Observatory website where they can train to use the data? Or do they have to train somewhere else and then graduate to using the data? Because I, I, I ask because I'm personally curious because my programming skills are... Uh, Non-existent. Better than mine. That's true, <laughs> but it's just like the idea. The I uh, they're not good enough to even open Python. You know what I mean? Oh, come on. I, well, no, seriously, yes, like, yes. cause it's a whole thing. You have to build an environment, and you have to download a bunch of packages. And I learned in grad school how to download a Python package, and now if you sat me in front of a computer and you know, I we're like, do it. I I I without you know hours and hours of of Googling, I wouldn't be able to figure it out. So. What is what is a way for somebody who's a citizen scientist who is interested in these topics to get to the point that they can actually start looking at the data, which is which is publicly available, as you say. Like, what does that what does that arc look like? Uh,
0: yeah, that, it's a, it's a very good question. So I'll say that people at Goddard Space Flight Center they are trying to do some of these activities. It's called Helio Analytics Group there, because it's not just you, right? It's it's uh, mid-career scientists, unless you're very young. I mean, people are not necessarily, you have to spend some uh, time and effort to kind of understand the language of AIML, Python, etc. So they are kind of trying to create these modules. These are all new activities, right, uh, that have come about in the past in my case it's been 4 years in kind of bringing these small groups together for Helio analytics it's about a year and a half but they are exactly concentrating on that how can you create training model modules you know to train people who so two layers of training right you have a basic college degree and you don't know anything about programming or it could be that you don't have a college degree, but you have an eye for something else, a natural language processing. These are actual AIML has really changed our world. And uh, trust me, I don't understand it very deeply.
2: Uh, I want to go back uh, before we move completely away from this uh, earthquake business, because it's really, really fascinating to me. And I, I don't know that you'll have any answers about this, but have you? overheard any talk of what sort of mechanism would be at play if there was an interaction between the Sun and the seismicity on earth like how what is the means by which they would even interact?
0: I mean you know if you just think of physics what are the physics processes right it, It's really um, conductivity I uh, you know electric current. Electric current that causes voltage fluctuation. Electric current can cause, you know, based on region. I, I don't know whether they have enough energy to change plate tectonics. Mm,
2: like piezoelectrically I, I almost know. or something? Say that again? Almost like a piezoelectric? Piezo,
0: exactly. I yes, see. people have talked about that. Wow. But, uh, you know, I want to kind of go there if we see that there is strong evidence inference model from this first kind of scooping of data and looking at input output then then we can put resources and dedicate it
2: of course of course yeah i'm just curious that i'm just curious what sort of theories would would even explain that if there was you know Uh, of course it has to be demonstrated that there even is an interaction there but uh i'm just trying to imagine
0: can I add one more thing to yeah. you? because because there is so much unknown and not any one human being kind of has uh, the knowledge or the mental capacity to comprehend this. But lightning, kind of what role does that play? Hmm. It's yeah. fascinating, fascinating, and and the whole um, global electrodynamic coupling. It's a circuit.
2: Yeah. It's like a capacitor or something. It's very strange. Um, and and I feel like that has yet to be totally built into our weather modeling. I, I guess we should get a weather person on here at some point to teach us about how the weather models are built, because actually the, the weather models are pretty amazing. I I just am sometimes I I look at my app on my phone about the weather and I'm like, I'm sometimes just struck by how incredible it is that they can tell me what, you know, it's going to rain next Friday or something like that. Um, and I wonder to what extent the solar weather is built into those models and, you know, where, how that interface is going. You you mentioned lightning and, and obviously, yeah, if the upper atmosphere is, uh, is largely a result of this interaction between the magnetosphere and the sun, but that is sort of arcing periodically down to the ground and closing loops and draining the, the charge reservoir, so to speak. And, it's just an unendingly complex yeah. system there's
0: the cloud nucleation you know with energetic particles I mean you name it what we haven't done is sort of dedicated chains now, that that's been the goal of the living with the star program but you know given the resources we get you can't do everything but if it, it's, it's kind of looking at this system, systematically
2: do you know anybody can you could you maybe you can just send us an email later if you can't think of it now but if you know anyone who's studying that interaction in particular we would love to talk to them and also the earthquake business too if anybody's if you think of anybody who's combing through that data um I would love to pick their brain at some point.
0: Uh, absolutely. Once this topic is done, you know, by end of August, you know, they would have some answer. Actually, someone from the group would be awesome.
2: Yeah, that'd yeah, be Yeah, really that'd cool. be
0: fantastic. Um, I, I kind of have a, 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 sharp, a sharp
1: turn in the line of questioning. Do, you have, do you have others? No, not all. So what do you think could be done to improve science education?
0: Oh, that, that, that's, that's a um, tough question. I, I feel that um, uh, in 21st century, we haven't kept up, you know, our education system dates back to 19th century, I think, really. Uh, so, I mean, where would I begin? Uh, That's my question. Uh, Okay, so maybe we can... But it needs to be rethought, redone, to engage the bright young minds. Yeah, because something
1: that I really struggled with when I was studying science was that it never, until I got to graduate school, it never really rose above rote memorization.
2: With the spirit being that we, le- we already know how all of these things work and you should learn all the things we already know about. And you almost get this impression when you're coming up through at least the early years of becoming a scientist that there's very little left to be done, right? Because there's been all these heroes of science who have slayed all the big dragons and... You know, there's just some details, but but honestly, like once you get to the end of the road, you realize that it couldn't be farther from the truth, right? Once you finish your PhD, you're like, oh my goodness, like we actually don't know a lot of stuff, and even the stuff we thought we knew is probably going to change in the next century. And uh, how do you you think that that spirit of that inspiration could be re-injected into the educational system?
1: Yeah, like how do you combine subject matter expertise with a curiosity-driven approach?
2: Where there's a lot of things unknown and a lot of answers that need to be tackled, you know.
0: I I, I think, uh, you know, the kind of textbooks we have created doesn't work. We have to create textbooks with examples. So you're asking me questions that people will normally not ask, right? They'll take you down straightforward path, basically. Um, Coming to talk to you, I kind of wondered. I said, you know, not knowing what you would ask. said, I mean, you know, I know nothing, basically other than what you are saying, right? That rote memorizations, okay, maybe Maxwell's equations, if I even remember them, things like that, right? But what we have um, sort of begin to understand at least in the physical sciences is that, I, I, I think we have more or less mastered the fundamental laws. And even there, actually, there are questions right now. Universe is expanding, and you know, Hubble is kind of having to reconcile with data, and we don't even know the answer to that. But let's keep that. But generally speaking, we kind of know the basic laws. Um, Where a lot of progress needs to be made is this: uh, the complexities of the interaction of all these laws. And that's what we are seeing. And if we if can kind of, you know, just like we talked about earthquake, right? I mean, if we can kind of start exposing areas, we have to ask three, four questions to get down to the root cause of pretty much everything. And we don't allow ourselves almost to get there. And that's kind of a freedom I found, you know, when we started looking at the application of AIML. It's an untouched territory and I can ask any question. I can ask if uh, the sun kind of has any impact on regional climate. I have data and I can interrogate that. I don't have to just only look at physics models, but if I can get inference patterns, I still have to explain the physics but we can ask those questions.
1: And have you found inference patterns between the sun and climate?
0: No, I haven't done that problem yet. I'm just giving examples, right? So we have to uh, really sort of bring this spirit of um, curiosity through our curriculum. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like... We have organized textbooks.
2: Right. It's almost like students could benefit from a parallel class that was something like i know it sounds super advanced but like just an open seminar like open topics in science you know because it's really the open topics that inspire new scientists to go home and and think and work and toil to develop the skills necessary to analyze data to perform the tests and really ask they need to they need to have questions that they really care about you know if if a, if a kid who's sitting in high school is told okay this is how the sun works this is how this works he's like okay check i'll just take the test like move on but if he's told hey we don't know how the sun affects the atmospheric wind currents uh, and that's something that you know maybe you could do one day this is a very different uh, educational attitude really and i think it would be a lot more successful
0: Uh, can i share kind of one of my very recent experience um uh, you 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 are actually getting me kind of excited. Something to think about. What do we do during our meetings, right? How how can we energize? I, I kind of uh, uh, created a school called Heliophysics Summer School that's been going on since 2007. It's, it's really mostly for uh, graduate students and all that. But even there, you know, what are the questions you give them? So very recently... Um, I was uh, participating in something called Eddy Symposium, Jack Eddie, who is one of these foremost sort of interdisciplinary scientists. He's passed away in 2009, but he's the one who made the connection between climate and science through looking at actually tree ring growth and um, uh, fascinating right? Uh, concept. In this meeting, what I found, and there were a lot of young people. By young, I mean between 25 and 35, okay? And uh, what I found is they have all benefited from internet, from programs like yours, right? So people are not just, once you have gone beyond high school, have time, positive influence of internet can be tremendous. And these are people across the globe, not just from our country here. I was fascinated to see that, but how can we sort of capitalize on that and, and make it more global and extensive?
2: I think part of it too, I, I don't know how to totally solve this problem, but you know, there's a real spirit inside of science where once you have an idea of how something works in nature, you must defend it. like aggressively right and there's not a very easy way for scientists to change their minds about things and i think that this really slows down progress and it it leads also the new students to the impression that science is, once a theory is established, that that's it. And there's no point in working on that idea anymore because it's already been sealed up.
1: Well, it's like the epicycles, right? The epicycles worked great to describe the motion of the planets. And that was part of the reason that it was a theory that was so difficult to unseat because you can look at something and you can have multiple interpretations of what the underlying mechanics actually are that show you what it is that you're seeing. And From all of my experience in science, it felt very much like, and maybe this is because I never became a PI to be the person who's pushing the the limits, but as a graduate student, it very much felt like the reimagining of the fundamental model. Of like, you know, what if what if what we're looking at is epicycles, like what if our model is the epicyclic model? And what if there's actually a different explanation that that fits all of the observed data? There's not a ton of space for that. And it seems, especially the larger the institution, the less willing the institution is to take a step back. And or to be... the
2: more p- famous the investigator who came yeah, up with the original right? theory. Yeah, right. Because
1: people love heroes. Like sci- I feel like oftentimes science is a place of heroism and of these amazing ideas, and the ideas push us forward into this new paradigm and people are very reluctant to go back and to take that paradigm apart because it feels disrespectful it feels like it causes the earth to turn into this it's basically you're standing on solid ground and then all of a sudden it's jello and you're like i don't like this so we'll we'll we'll, we'll leave it but what do you what do you think of future of huge institutional science that is willing to tackle these kinds of paradigm shifts that we know have to happen, right? Like you just said, our educational system is from the 19th century. We know that that paradigm shift has to happen, but there's a lot of things holding everything in place. And so how does an institution like NASA open itself up to paradigm shifts without undermining its institutional standing?
0: So uh, for example, what you just said, it's that we are not taking enough risk. In our missions, NASA, kind of, there is an aversion to risk, generally speaking, right? So it's sort of- (laughs) That's a good thing, probably. (laughs) You're you're, you're building on. But, you know, in the last several years, we've had uh, newer uh, associate administrators who are actually pushing, like, okay, I'm going to reserve an amount of money that is for doing science that risky.
2: Mm-mm. Uh, well, I mean, uh, from a technical uh, standpoint, it makes sense that the, you'd want to avoid risk with things like spaceships and stuff like that.
0: Or even
1: with, you know, you have a billion dollar satellite. It's probably not the place to be like exploring.
0: Well, so that's the question, right? A lot of our resources go into sort of missions and satellites. But on the science side, actually, we have opened up high risk, high payoff. So that's kind of progress, right? We are actually asking people to come forward with their um, risky uh, ideas uh, without being uh, ridiculed. Uh, The whole concept of open science, um, you know, I was agnostic about it because I always thought we were doing open science, but the meaning is much broader than that. It's actually kind of uh, making a hub where we make our data available, where we can post questions. You know, th- those are the new things that's actually happening. The world of GitHub, basically, right? Uh, where you're interacting. I, we, we have to keep the culture in mind. You know, kids today don't talk to each other, but they can write text, put material, blog, all of that. The, the goal is to train to educate, to inspire. So these are some of the things I think um, NASA Science Mission Directorate is experimenting with and pushing the community uh, to come forward.
2: I love the I love the idea of opening up science in general and really making it not something that is exclusively the, the domain of this ivory tower institution. You know where, because I think that i think I think you you'd probably agree there's record breaking distrust in our civilization right now um people seem divided politically ideologically, and I think one of the best ways to minimize that kind of polarization is transparency right Everybody can see what everybody else is up to you know and especially you know in the science worlds we come to... um Anastasia mentioned that we explore a lot of different science microcosms, you know, include not just the academy, but people who are working outside the academy. And there's a lot of distrust. They have a lot of distrust for, for the standard institutions. And I really believe that this opening up of all of these data sets and of and helping people access them would go, you know, light years towards building trust not just within science, but I think that would trickle down into the civilization in general. I think it would be a huge, huge benefit. I, I love to hear, you know, I believe that it, it will be very powerful in terms of uh, strengthening the trust amongst individuals in the society.
1: Yeah, like I had somebody who was, uh, they were they were curious about the GSAID data that was being collected over the course of the pandemic. And... Uh, What I found when I looked into it is that you got priority access to the data if you had an institutional affiliation. And I was like, that seems not fair
2: it also was didn't you apply without one and it took a, like I don't know how long it took it was I don't, very difficult I, to I, so them. what I
1: did to test it is actually I applied cuz I have institutional credentials so I applied with the institutional credentials I got access the next day and then I applied with my civilian credentials and I it's it's been several months and still nothing and so it's just this it's it's this thing where on one hand I understand that people want to keep data to them like this is a very old scientific process right which is that we collect the data the data is ours you're going to analyze it the way that you're going to analyze it you're going to publish on it and then anybody else can request the data but it's always you know it's it's given out in this way where you have to wade through it and it's very challenging to figure out how the person did the analysis in the first place and so i just i really think that the future of science is a science where there is the ability for people from different directions to come together because there's a huge number of people that we speak to who are they're educated in engineering and chemistry and technology. Uh, they're, they're, they're learned people, but they're autodidacts. And so they're not inside of the academy. And they look at the peer review system and they're like, well... You know, even the people inside the academy don't like the peer review system. And so there's this kind of, there's this, there's this isolation of ideas that I really want to see. I want to see that egg broken open and I want to see what will hatch from it. Because I think that it's going to be something really beautiful for the future that is much more integrated and, and fruitful than maybe the last 50 years have been because I feel like there's been a stagnation in culture. You know how we're on like iPhone seventeen and like Batman twenty three. Like I feel like science sometimes has that same kind of stagnation to it.
0: Well, um, I I suppose um, in our country, probably because it had advanced so much, um, we see that. But again, as I was saying, you know what internet has done, what we have put out there. Think of what you are doing. Right, all of this in worldwide has made a tremendous impact. So there, there, there is a lot more to be done, but we have absolutely made progress, uh, I think globally. That that's kind of what I would say in our own respective country. Yes, it, the process of bureaucracy is slow, but we are. Taking those steps. We are taking those steps. So that's kind of the most important, you know. Uh, One of the words that I want to reiterate that you brought up trust. That is key pretty much to everything we do, whether personal or professional. And kind of building that trustworthy, inclusive zone where people can come and uh, freely kind of open up, Mm. exchange. Um, That's where rapid progress can be made. And um, as I was saying, I'm just returning from this uh, workshop that I just attended. And it was mind-blowing. It was a small group of 35 to 40 people, but it was transformative because people trusted came together, discussed, and talked about the things you're talking about, saying, how is it we don't do this in every meeting?
1: That's been, I mean, that that's that's maybe the most optimistic thing that I've heard. And it really, it it, it makes me feel a little bit less worried about the future. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Because I, you know, this project is the product of a deep love for science and a deep love for for human curiosity and ingenuity and the desire to understand more and understand better and to hear that this is that this is not something that we you know we sit in our studio and we talk to people through the internet and that it's it goes beyond this and that it is it is percolating up through the the structures of these old and venerable institutions is really it's very satisfying so thank you for
0: that and thank, thank you for doing this. So when you say you want to change, you are change agents. You are contributing to that. We all are. You know, I'm taking the time in uh, talking to you. I mean, making myself vulnerable, probably seeing things I shouldn't say. As a government employee, I don't know. <laughs> you know, as scientists, we kind of open up.
2: I think that's very healthy. I, I I believe that that's the spirit that will will guide us towards a more strong scientific institution in the future. A better NASA even. Um I I really applaud your efforts. And and it's been a joy to talk to you. Uh thank you for opening up. I I know it's uh I know it's often uh nerve-wracking you don't know uh you know, this is a very open conversation. You don't know what questions we're going to ask. We didn't send you any questions ahead of time, or despite anything.
1: despite the fact that you know many ask.
2: Yeah, um, but we're genu- we're motivated by curiosity. We just want to understand. So, you know, we're, we're we're again also trying to build trust, right? That's it's going to probably take us doing hundreds of episodes before some of the best uh, you know researchers will want even want to talk to us because they want we have to build trust that you know we're not you know, trying to do anything silly or, or trying to undermine anybody's uh, uh, position or anything like that. So I really appreciate you, you giving us that trust and coming here today.
0: So have you exhausted all your questions?
1: <laughs> I, I think, I, think for, just begun. I yeah. think for now, um, what I would actually love is, you know, you mentioned this, um, Ames research conference, and the Frontier Development Lab. And maybe what we could do is, after the summer's conference concludes, we, we've been talking a lot about doing kind of roundtable discussions where we have a couple of different people on. And so maybe you could help us coordinate with some of the... If anybody is interested in coming on and talking about the sort of, you know, the frontier as it's being developed. And maybe we can have some kind of... Uh, Uh, moderated discussion about what it is that's being worked on because I know that our audience is fascinated by it and it's obvious I would be
0: delighted send me an email and I will put you in touch um, well you know the respective people and then you can choose you know amongst the many topics general whichever way you kind of want to curate the conversation but yeah one of the so you are demystifying science right one of the project i have undertaken in my mind is to demystify ai ml mm-hmm. because people are just naturally afraid and uh not trusting and that's actually and- something that we
1: are planning so we the way that we usually work is that we do these these uh investigations. And we talked to lots of different people about lots of different aspects of some field. And we haven't really done artificial intelligence and machine learning. We've kind of started touching on it, but it's a huge field. And it's something that we really want to demystify because people talk about it in very, very mystified terms. Mm-hmm. And so this is definitely something that, that we would love, love, love to do.
0: Can I, can I say one more thing? I think that is pretty significant in the context of NASA uh, being trusting and what can we do to really open up science. So just very recently Science Mission Directorate actually have um, opened the doors to investigation of UAP. That is a huge step forward. So you kind of know how any scientist who's been associated with UAP, UFO in the past have been um, ridiculed. And then taking away that kind of stigma, right? Kind of let's keep faith and belief somewhere else. And then when we bring science into the picture, let's just use the tools of science to interrogate what's around us and see what inference we can draw. Mm, and yeah. that is a huge sort of. Uh, I really applaud applaud our associate administrator for uh, taking this uh, bold step.
2: Is are any investigators in particular at the front of that movement, or are there any?
0: Well, right now, uh, I I have no idea. This is this is an idea that have just been put forward from NASA. Uh, has happened very, uh, very recently. So I don't know that we are at a stage of having received proposals or anything. I see. But you are familiar with this uh, famous uh, scientist from Harvard, right? Who looked at the Umu-amua. interstellar um, object, Oumuamua.
2: Yeah, we had him on the show, actually.
0: Uh, did you have, I guess, Avi Lo? Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Yeah, he was on about a month there. Not we're the trying period. to
0: convince him to let us go with
1: him to Papua New Guinea.
2: To dig up the uh, interstellar <laughs> yeah. asteroid.
1: Really?
0: we'll Is see that, that where we're... it is? If you go, let me know. I have <laughs> a sister who lives there. Okay. <laughs> well, excellent. It'll, we'll make Maybe we can say hello. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, we're trying to go film it, but we'll see. We're working on yeah.
0: that. But but that's what I mean. We, we create a lot of um, mistrust and stigma, right? Uh, when someone undertakes something. Uh, that the rest of the community feels is not right, even though we do, neither side has strong enough evidence. So this has to be really looked into, I think. Mm-hmm. And then you can put it aside.
1: I really want to see a version of science, which is, you know, people talk about believe the science, believe the science, and what they usually mean is believe the outcome. But what I want people to mean when they say that is trust the process. Trust the fact that we have a set of tools that will allow us to get to the bottom of it. Not that the outcome is final, but that our ability to reach a good outcome is almost, is is limitless. And that is something that, I, you know, I think that this work in opening trust in NASA and getting people involved and teaching people what science looks like and how it works and how discoveries are made, right? That's not something that you learn as a student. You learn, in the, you learn in the past tense that discoveries were made, not what it looked like to make them. And so I think that that is, that is, that is a vision of, of, of an optimistic and very, very beautiful science that I hope that we will manage to achieve in our lifetimes.
0: You said it very nicely.
1: I appreciate that. Alright, well so let's let's wrap for now and then we'll we'll definitely have you back and there's lots more to talk to you about and you you you're sort of you're this this nexus that connects a lot of different ideas and so thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure. Take yeah care. wonderful job. Keep up the good work. Thank you. You you are definitely catalyzing people out there.
1: That's fantastic.
2: We're doing our little part. Thank yeah. you so much.
1: Thank you.
0: Bye.
2: Right, bye.